All right. Last week, we began a new series of sermons, and as I told you a week ago, I'm going to be uh, spending five weeks just looking at various texts from the very first two chapters of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We're not going to go verse by verse through those two chapters. I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit, but it's going to be right in that very, very narrow spot of Scripture, the very first two chapters of the entire Bible, which describe beginnings in a variety of ways. Last week, we looked at literally just the first four words of our Bible, in the beginning, God. Uh, We talked about the importance of those four words uh, and and the two verses uh, that that begin the very, very first uh, chapter of the Bible. I said, before anything existed, God was God. He has always been God. There has never been a rival for God out of the messy darkness of nothingness. The Spirit is in total control. We said together a week ago, uh, in in the messy darkness of life, the Spirit's on it. The Spirit's on it. I hope some of you just use that as as a memory marker this week. The Spirit's on this. The Spirit's on this. The work of God's creation is good. Today, I kind of want to begin to dig in a little bit more deeply into that question about the work of creation. How did the work of creation take place? The late Gary Larson was the creator of the cartoon The Far Side, and he was kind of an armchair theologian, I think, because he had a few perspectives on this. I think I, do we have that one? Here's here's one of Gary Larson's thoughts on how creation took place. Uh, This is God creating snakes out of clay, Uh, and if you can't read it, he says, boy, these things are a cinch. I don't know, I thought it was funny. (laughs) That's Gary Larson's perspective. The Bible has a slightly different perspective on how creation took place, and that's what we're going to look at today. Most of us, I think, are aware of the fact that the Bible describes the creation of the universe as taking place over a period of six days. And of course, modern science has a lot of problems with that, has raised a lot of questions about that, because it just seems too short a period for the, uh, for the universe to come into creation. Modern science has suggested that the universe came into existence over a period of millions of years, and six days just seems like too short a period of time for the universe to come into existence. What's interesting to me is that that is very much a question that is a function of modern science as in the last 100, 150 years or so. Prior to that, the main beef that the world had with the book of Genesis is that the creation period was too long. Not that it was too short. The the problem was that it was too long. The question being, if your God is so powerful, why did he waste his time for six days? Couldn't he just say that it happened and then it happened? And so the world has always had problems with the book of Genesis. Is it too long? Is it too short? And biblical scholars, in attempt to kind of reconcile those kinds of questions, have done their own questioning and and ask questions about, well, when the book of Genesis says it took place in a day, does that literally mean 24 hours? Is it necessary for us to say a day equals 24 hours? And there's all kinds of theories about how exactly that works and what exactly the timeline was and when these things took place and how long it took for all of them to take place. And those things are all very interesting, but... Like I said last week, I don't think Genesis is really concerned with handing us a stopwatch so that we can time the events of creation. I don't think Genesis intends for us to know exactly how long it took or exactly when it took place. These words that we're going to read together today weren't given to us in order to teach us history. 
Now, I'm not saying that they're not true. I'm just saying that that's not their intent. And so I'm not going to spend time pondering unanswerable questions because I don't think that's why God gave me this text. I don't think that that was his intent or his purpose. Instead, I think the intent in the opening lines of Genesis seems to be to demonstrate the fact that God created methodically. God created with great purpose. God created with great thought and intention. Creation was not random as perhaps Gary Larson would say. Oh, there it is. Creation wasn't random. In the hallway outside the gymnasium, there's a a painting hung on the wall that was created by the students at CORE, our midweek program for kids. Uh, They created it back several years ago when our pastor Rachel was was in charge of children's ministry. And the painting has blotches of brightly colored paint on it. Perhaps you've seen it or perhaps you'll notice it next time you head into the gym. When pastor Rachel originally put that painting up, she put uh, kind of a placard with explanation uh, underneath it. She said this painting was created by the kids in core and in order to create these splotches of color they used paint filled balloons that they popped in order to give it the splatter effect the problem was that pastor rachel did not check her spelling on this placard and so she she posted it uh, and when it initially went up the placard said this this painting was created using paint filled balloons that the kids pooped in order to give it the splatter effect uh, thankfully, I believe it was Mary Cahall who caught that error before a Sunday morning came <laughs> and we changed the placard. Uh, the kids did not poop out their creation. It was not random. It was not random. Uh, and that's kind of the opposite of what we see in Genesis. I'm not going to go too far down the uh, scatological humor road here, but I can tell you that many of the other creation mythologies of ancient cultures have God doing exactly that in order to create. But the Bible says that's not what happened at all. He was methodical. He was intentional. He was purposeful and he took great care with creation. He used his words. And so I want to read to you just a handful of phrases beginning in Genesis chapter one, verse three today. The Bible reads this way. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And it goes on to describe that for a few lines. And a few lines later in verse six, referring to the creation of the sky, we're told, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters. And it was so. And then we skip down a few lines later after we've described the sky. We get to verse nine, the appearance of dry land. And the Bible says, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And it was so. And the land appears and we go on and we go on and we read this pattern again and again. The pattern continues. The vehicle of creation is God's words. And what happens is again and again, the Bible tells us that God said, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Speaking words of wisdom, let there be. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Actually, it's one of those phrases that English has trouble grasping in in the very, very literal uh, original biblical language. God is actually saying about light, for instance, he's just saying light be, and light was. Sky be, and sky was. Land be, and land was. Animals be, 
and animals were. Stars be, and stars were, and so on, and so on, and so on. We can remember the pattern this way, though, and you'll see these words on the screen. God said, and it was so. That's what I want you to remember. God said, and whatever he said, and it was so. As a matter of fact, in the remainder of chapter 1, in the remainder of Genesis chapter 1, ten times we get that pattern. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. God said, and it was. It happens again and again and again. This is God speaking something into creation. And that's what I want to focus on today, the role that God's words play in the story of creation and what the creation story teaches us about God's trustworthiness. God's trustworthiness. Can we trust what God is saying? And the first thing that I want you to notice today is this. God's words precede reality. They come before reality. God's words precede reality. God talks about light before light exists. God talks about the sky before the sky exists. God talks about land or anything else we can pull out of Genesis chapter 1. He talks about it before it exists. God's words precede reality. Literally everything in the universe was talked about by God before it ever existed. He was talking about it before it ever existed. And that's a pattern that we see continue beyond the creation story. In the rest of the Bible, God is forever talking about things before they exist. As a matter of fact, all throughout the Old Testament, God talks about a Savior that hasn't appeared yet. And all through the Gospels, Jesus is talking about a kingdom that we can't see yet. And even in the individual stories of the Bible, God tells Joseph to go prepare for a famine that hasn't happened yet. God pronounces David the king over a nation whose throne isn't available yet. And Jesus stands in front of 5,000 hungry people and gives thanks for a lunch that doesn't exist yet. God is always talking about things before they are real, before they exist. So much of what God says throughout scripture pertains to a reality that just hasn't materialized yet. He speaks before his subject is real. He speaks before his subject is identifiable. He speaks before his subject is discernible. And here's why that matters to you and me today. When God talks about something, I don't have to see it to trust it. I don't have to be able to see it to trust it because I know that the very nature of God is that he's always talking about stuff I can't see yet. His words precede reality. So when God says something, I don't have to see it to trust it. When God speaks, we can take confidence in the fact that he is very often speaking about things that we can't see yet. And our inability to see it doesn't mean that it's not true. Romans chapter 4 verse 17 refers to God as the God who calls into being things that were not. I love that descriptor of God. He's the God that calls into being things that were not. We've just never seen that before. He spoke about it before it existed. Old Abram was famous for being childless. But God changed his name to the father of multitudes long before he became the ancestor of an entire nation. Simon the fisherman was best known for his unpredictable, volatile personality. 
But Jesus gave him the nickname, The Rock, long before he became the founder of the Christian movement. So when we feel like failures, but God's word says we are more than conquerors, we can trust him because we remember that God's words precede reality. He talks about things that are real long before we can recognize that they are real. And we could go on, we could go on, we could go on. Suffice to say that if you search the written word of God, and if through prayer you, you open your spiritual ears to hear and discern what God is saying to you, if you discern prophetic gifts in, in the words of godly people in your life, then chances are, if you do those things, you are going to hear God say things that don't make sense because you can't see any evidence of their truth. And in that moment, you have a choice. You can either discount God's word as irrelevant because it doesn't line up with reality, or you can choose to trust the one whose words precede reality. But it would be a mistake to assume that all that means is that God is just really, really good at predicting the future. Kind of sounds that way if we're, if we're talking about it this far, right? Like God just, man, he knows the lottery numbers before they come out. He knows, you know, the winners of the World Series and the Super Bowl and stuff like he's just really good at predicting the future. Of course, that's not what we're saying about God. God isn't good at predicting the future. God creates the future. Okay, he makes the future the present. His words are so powerful that whatever he says about the future becomes the present. In other words, God's words define reality. They don't just precede reality. God's words define reality. It's not the case that God gives a command and then all of a sudden heavenly workers try to make the reality match what he said. Like the heavenly hosts show up and say, okay, we got to gather all these waters. He said, let the waters be gathered. So now we got, does somebody have a squeegee? We got to get all these waters over here. We got to figure this out. No, God's not giving commands or orders or directives that, that some other beings are trying to execute and hope it will meet up with his standards. That's not what God is doing. It's like God just witnessed a crime and now he's, he's talking to the police sketch artist and, and the sketch artist is going to try his best to create something that he never saw that somebody else is describing. Do we understand that that is not how creation took place? God isn't saying go do this thing and, the, and then the universe is just trying its best to make it happen. No, God is saying let there be and there was. He's not describing any reality that already exists. What he says just becomes reality. Light, be. Just be. What he says just becomes reality. That's what we mean when we say God is truth. The author of Hebrews reminds us it is impossible for God to lie. Let me unpack that a little bit. It is impossible for God to lie. It's not impossible for God to lie because he's just such a good guy that he can't bring himself to tell a fib, okay? God is not George Washington standing at the base of the cherry tree saying, I cannot tell a lie. It was me. I admit it. I'm just too moral to, to, to fib. That's not why God can't tell a lie. God can't tell a lie because whatever God says becomes. It just becomes. You know, there's, there's the, the, the philosophical question. Is there anything God can't do? 
And in a sense, the biblical answer to that question is yes. There's actually quite a bit that God can do. It's, it's his nature. And one of those things is he cannot tell a lie. Even if he really wanted to lie about something, do you understand that his divine hands are cuffed? He can't tell a lie because whatever he says defines reality. It just happens. It just happens. It is literally impossible for God to lie. You see, we aren't like that because our words are subjective. We have different languages, right? We have different nuance in our language. Language in the human sense evolves. We have slang. We have colloquialisms. We have regional dialects. And even to the degree that we talk in this world about, well, I just want to speak my truth, right? Because everything we say is, is, is subjective. It's, it pertains to my ability to describe what is happening already out there. And so I'm going to do my best to use words as symbols and markers to describe what I think is happening out there. I'm describing, and it's imperfect, isn't it? It's imperfect. Just if you don't believe me, go on Twitter and watch people argue with each other who are really talking about the same thing. Right? Because language is an imperfect way of describing reality as we experience it. God's words aren't like that. God's words aren't subjective. God's words are 100% objective. They define reality. They are the standard by which truth is measured. They don't describe a reality that's out there. They are the perfect vehicle for creating reality. Now, great, right? Okay, we got our theology down. Here's why that matters. Here's why that matters. When God speaks, I don't have to know it to trust it. I don't have to know it to trust it. In our lack of faith, sometimes we're tempted to question or to outright, outright reject what God is saying because it doesn't line up with what we already know to be true right? Finger quotes on the word no there for those of you that are just listening to the audio. We reject God's words because we think, well, that doesn't line up with what I know to be true. But what I'm saying is we don't have to know it to trust it. I want you to really kind of think about this creation account, Genesis 1 chapter 3, in the following verses, in the way that we read them today. Think about it in, in just the absolute absurdity and, and the literalness of what it's saying. Imagine the audible voice of God. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the earth is, is formless, it's void, it's empty, it's dark. There's just kind of blob of nothingness. And then we hear God's voice over that. And God says, let there be light. What does that look like? We have no objective for that. We don't know what to do with that. Let me give you a different one. Imagine the audible voice of God suddenly says to us here in this place. Imagine the voice of God says to us right here today, audibly, so that we can all hear it. Hobson Road Community Church. The sky is pink. What do we do with that? We reject it because every one of us here knows that the sky is not pink. The sky is blue. That's our reality. It's all we've ever experienced. It's all we've ever seen. And we know it. The sky is blue. Sometimes it looks white. Sometimes it looks gray if there's clouds. Sometimes it looks kind of pea soupy if there's about to be a tornado. 
There was a little bit of a period late last night where it looked yellow at my house. Wasn't that weird? But it doesn't look pink. It doesn't look pink. But what if God says, Hobson Road Community Church, the sky looks pink and we reject it because we know that that's not true. What I'm suggesting you, to you today is that if God tells you the sky is pink, you better look up because guess what? The sky's pink. The minute he said it, it became so. The sky's like, better be pink. <laughs> better be pink. Look up. Because it's so. His words define reality. And that's what's happening in the creation story. Reality is being shaped by the words of God. And the same thing is still happening today. So when God calls you his beloved, his treasured possession, that might not match what you know to be true. That might not match the way you feel about yourself. But hear this. God is not trying to flatter you. And he's not imposing some standard over you that he hopes you'll try and kind of live up to, but he knows ultimately you're going to fail at. No, when God says you are beautiful, you are beloved, and you are in my treasured possession, guess what? He's defining your reality. Reality is being transformed in your life because God said it. When God says you are forgiven... When God says you are forgiven, he's not choosing in that moment to just overlook or ignore the things that we all know to be true, which is you are guilty of sin. He's not choosing to overlook that. He's not choosing to ignore it in the sense of, I'm just going to try not to pay attention to that and just say, you're forgiven. That's not what's happened. No, when the word of God says you are forgiven, forgiven, he's taking those facts and he's transforming them. He's changing them. Those facts cease to exist. Reality is being defined when God speaks. When he says you are forgiven, you better look. Because guess what? You're blameless. You're blameless. Here's one way of looking at all of this. Things are the way they are because God said that's how they are. Follow my logic again? Things are the way they are because that's how God said they are. Did I say that right? Yes, that's how they are. But the last thing I want to point out about that statement is that the things that are the way they are weren't always things at all. Is everybody here totally confused now? I know I am, and that was kind of part of my goal. What did the world look like before God started speaking? I reminded you a moment ago that we read about it last week. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, the world was formless. It was empty. It was dark. That's what it was before God spoke and then God spoke. So let me take you back to that moment again. God says, let there be light. Let there be, and everybody's listening, light. And you know what happens in that instant, in my imagination? The baby universe looks back at God and says, what's light? What's light? We we don't even know what that is. God says, let there be land. The universe is great. What's land? Let there be sky. Go ahead. I don't know what that is either. No one knew what a mountain was before God spoke about mountains. 
Nobody knew what a fish was or a bird was. Nobody could imagine a camel before God said, let there be large, hairy horses with humps on their back. (laughs) Nobody could imagine anything before God began to talk about it. Here's what I want to say. God's words don't just precede reality. They don't just define reality. They stretch reality. We already talked about how God speaks about things that haven't happened yet. But this, I think, is deeper than that. This, I think, is even more significant than that. God speaks about things that have never even happened that we can't even imagine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 puts it this way. What eye has not seen, and what no ear has ever heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Let me boil that down. God is revealing to us by his spirit things that we haven't seen, things that we haven't heard about, and things that we couldn't even imagine if we all put our heads together. Now, how do you suppose he's revealing those to us by his spirit? I think he's talking about it. This is the voice of God. God is speaking. God is talking about things that no one could ever imagine if God hadn't said it first. And here's why that matters to us. When God is speaking to me, I don't have to understand it to trust it. I can trust it before I understand it. God says stuff that doesn't make sense because it doesn't line up with what we've come to expect from life. Listen to this. When Gideon had to overthrow a warlord, God told him to let more than 99% of his army go home first. When Elijah had to build an altar for fire, God told him to soak it with water first. When Jehoshaphat had to send out an army against an attacking coalition of three nations, God told him to make sure the musicians go in front. (laughs) You got that, Sheldon? When Hosea wanted to demonstrate fidelity, God said, good, go marry a prostitute. Read God's word. You are going to find God saying plenty of things that don't make sense by human standards. We say, oh, that'll never work. We say, God, what are you even thinking? That's the opposite of helpful. Anybody ever prayed that prayer? (laughs) God, that's the opposite of what you were supposed to say. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. Because he's taking our reality and he's stretching it. He's saying, I know a truth that is deeper than the truth you know. And you don't have to understand it. But I want you to trust it. And the problem is, the challenge is, the hiccups come. When all too often, we very quickly reject God's word because it stretches our reality. And it challenges us to trust things that we don't understand. Could you extend me a little bit of grace for just a couple of minutes while I step on a few toes? This is why we go on and on struggling in our finances for the umpteenth time. Today's the first of the month. The rent's due. Mortgage is due. And once again, there wasn't quite enough to meet it. And we've gone round and round this circle again and again and again saying, God, why can't you give me enough? But we've still rejected his instructions to tithe 10% so he can bless the 90. Because it doesn't seem realistic. Or we go on and on in our lives 
struggling with intimacy, trying to make relationship works, relationships work again and again, and it never works. And we say, God, why do you hate me so? Why am I destined to be alone? All the while, we're still rejecting God's instructions to maintain purity and seek gratification only in marriage. Why? Because it doesn't seem realistic. Or, i got one more here. We continue to work ourselves into the ground week after week after week, getting more and more tired, never having quite enough time to get it all done, saying, God, why, why do you do this to me? But all the while, we're rejecting his instruction to take a weekly Sabbath. Why? Because it doesn't seem realistic. And when we do that, we're ignoring the fact that from the very foundations, God's words have stretched reality. And I don't have to understand it. He just wants me to trust it. That's where the blessing is. All right, I'm done stepping on toes. Let's bring this thing home, land the plane, all right? We have a choice. Our choice is to trust his words. The whole premise of what I want to share with you today, the whole premise of why I think the Bible goes to such great intent, ad nauseum, to tell us in its opening paragraphs, again and again and again, God spoke and it was. God spoke and it was. God spoke and it was. Here's the deal. You can read Genesis chapter 1. You can read Genesis chapter 2. But if you don't arrive at an understanding of the fact that one God speaks, it is. If you don't grab hold of that in those first two chapters, the rest of the Bible is going to be worthless. You can't know anything else that God is trying to reveal to you, that God is trying to share with you. You won't be able to trust and understand and grab hold of anything else until first we recognize that when God says, it is. It is. And I don't have to understand it. I don't have to be able to see it. I don't even have to agree with it. God just wants me to trust. God just wants me to trust. And so we have this choice. Are we going to trust his words or aren't we? Our commitment once we decide that we are going to be a people who trust, a people who believe, once we've made that choice, our decision, our commitment is to actually listen. To listen for his words, we believe that he is still speaking. I could and probably should preach about 10 other sermons about listening to God's word. Let me try and boil them down into one little sentence here. If you walk out of this room and say, God told me to, and then come up with some harebrained idea that doesn't match up, line up with scripture, I'm going to be very, very upset. And a little embarrassed that you got that idea from me. That is not what we're talking about. But we have access to the written word of God. Could we just start there? Could we just start there and choose to trust? We don't need to understand it all the time. We don't need to see it. Just trust it. Our commitment is to listen for his words, to believe that he is still speaking. And I would say this way, to understand that he is still creating. Would you pray with me? God, I want to pray an audacious prayer this morning in light of what we've read, in light of what we choose to trust today. I want to pray an audacious prayer on behalf of your people here gathered.
Our prayer today is that you would proclaim your words over these lives. Just as we together held Liam this morning and asked, Lord, that you would anoint his life, that you would set it apart as sacred unto yourself, that you would speak to him, that you would teach him to grow and to trust you and to follow you all the days of his life. Father, we now look in the collective mirror and we say, God, we need the very same thing. Most of us in this room are bigger than he is, but every one of us needs the same thing that we prayed for his life. So God, I want to pray that you would proclaim your words over these people today. Father, we want to ask you to speak some of the words we've heard you say before. Some of the words we've read in your written word, Lord, we ask that you would proclaim specifically in this time and in this place over this people. God, would you say in this space right now, let there be healing. Because the minute you say the word, healing is. Lord, would you look down in this room and say, healing be and allow it to be. Father, would you look down into this place today and would you say, let there be peace. And anxiety just disappears. Would you look down into this place and say, let there be freedom. Freedom be. And the chains of addiction crumble. Because when you say it, it's so. Father, we know the kinds of words you speak. 66 books in our Bible tell us and reveal to us the character of our God. The things that you say to your beloved. The words that you speak over those who you call your own. We know your vocabulary. We ask God now that you would utter those words over us. Because when you say, let there be, it is. Realities are transformed. Things change. And so I pray, Lord, that spiritual ears would be open. I pray, Lord, that every time we open our Bible, spiritual ears would be open to hear what you say. I pray, Lord, that you would destroy the lenses through which we, we read those words. The, the, the realities that we think we know that inhibit what you are saying. God, teach us to trust. Teach us to hear. Create in us, just as you created in this universe, we pray. We thank you for all of these things today in the name of Jesus. Everybody says, amen. amen. God's blessing go with you. There are a lot of people to greet on your way out today. Would you make sure you find somebody that you're glad to see? Greet them. God's blessing be with you.